Thank you very much, Jim. And it is great to be here and see lots of good old faces. Uh, when I was working on this introduction, my husband was kind of looking over my shoulder, and he stopped me halfway through it, and he says, Tori, he goes, I know there are so many things you want to say about working for Don Rumsfeld. He says, but don't say them, okay? Just get right to them. Um, when you introduce somebody as old as the secretary or as experienced as the secretary, there are so many things you should talk about. And you just start looking. I was pretty familiar with the bio, but I thought I ought to refresh. And I started looking at these things again, and I thought, okay, I should mention some of them. There are people from all over the country here. Illinois, New Trier High School. And as long as I worked at the Pentagon, and since then, there's never been a day that I didn't hear Secretary Rumsfeld bragging about New Trier, New Trier High School. He went to Princeton, where he also wrestled. What you may not know is he flunked out of Georgetown Law School. Flunked out or dropped? Dropped out? Flunked out? At Wick <laughs> You get your turn. New Wikipedia gets you in trouble every time. Worked for, a, worked for a few members of Congress. Worked in the, in a, for an investment banking firm. That one I didn't remember. Um, elected to Congress himself at 30. Served in the Nixon White House in two economic roles. Was smart enough to get out of the country and over to NATO. Comes back as the youngest Secretary of Defense. And comes back many years later as the most senior, most mature Secretary of Defense. One of the things he did the first time around as Secretary of Defense was oversee the transition to the all-volunteer military, which I personally and a lot of people think is one of the best things that ever happened to the military. You know, I'm going through these things, and you know what I thought, sir? You sound like Jim, a guy. How long did she get? <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a guy who can't keep a job, right? He's just going through these things every two years. It's changing. I was running out of paper. but. At a time when most people would say, I want to go to my house in Taos, I want to go to my place on the Eastern Shore, I don't need this nonsense anymore, Secretary Rumsfeld was willing to come back and serve again as the most mature Secretary of Defense. And a lot of you have heard so many things and know so much about what he did the second time around. One of the things that I always thought didn't get the attention it deserved were the transformation efforts that were underway. Despite everything he was dealing with at the time, 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, crises every single day, wolves at the door every single day, he remained very, very focused and very intently focused on transforming the military to meet big time 21st century challenges. And I promise you, as somebody who got the opportunity to work there in a very small way, the place is so huge, the challenges are so great, that literally if you could just get from the stuff from the left side of the desk to the right side of the desk, by the end of the day it was a big deal. And if you could just shoot the wolves at the door every single day, that was a big deal and you should be pretty proud of yourself. But if you really cared about the place and you really cared about the institution and you really cared about leaving it a better place than when you, when you got there and how you found it, then you worked on those bigger, more long-term efforts. And the person I heard who best described this was Secretary Gates at your portrait ceremony last year. Some of us who tried to save the taxpayer dollars suggested that we just take the old portrait and put a little plaque underneath it that said, okay, second time around. But Secretary Rumsfeld had another portrait done. I paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's not in the Wikipedia account. Okay, so this is the nice part. This is where I get nice. So, <laughs> so Secretary Gates said, among other things, he's dealing with all these challenges, and he said, Secretary Rumsfeld, in addition to fighting America's enemies, Rumsfeld simultaneously and doggedly pursued an agenda of institutional transformation and reform, grappling with inertia, invested interests like the champion wrestler he once was. 
The result is an American military that has become more agile, lethal, and prepared to deal with the full spectrum of conflict. And it is so, so important. It's not sexy, but it is so important. But all kidding aside, Secretary Rumsfeld could have gone on and done a million things, but he came back and he served so well. And if you don't have his book, get it. And no matter what else is going on in your life, take time to read it. Not just to read about the things you've probably already heard a lot about, but to look back at these incredibly important chapters of history in which he has had the privilege, I can say that, to serve. He's lived for one third of the country's history. Which think is of a, that. Think of that. What a young country. Um, <laughs> and from his book, you won't just learn a lot of interesting things about him, you will learn some amazing things about this great country and these incredibly important critical chapters in its history. And he does it in a way that brings remarkable transparency to it. And I really think, as much as I would like to make fun of the book as well, and Keith here has helped him, helped him tremendously with it, it brings a transparency and an accountability to government that I think has set a very, very high bar for anyone who tries to write a book like this afterwards. So quite seriously, it was a real privilege to work for Secretary Rumsfeld. It is a privilege to introduce him. And before I get out of your way, just remember, Mutually assured destruction. <laughs> you start on me, I'm right here. <laughs> Sir? Can you imagine working with her every day? <laughs> In the book, and there's a website to the book, which you might want to take a look at also. There are some 3,000 documents that are there. And Father's Day's coming up. Congratulations. Graduation gifts, all of those good things, and the pro my proceeds, the publisher's proceeds go to the publisher. My proceeds go to the military charity. So it's a good cause, and and you can you can all rush out and you know get your Christmas card lists. And um, Tory is mentioned in the book, in the acknowledgments. There are, it's it's really for all ages too. There are only two places where there's bad language. One of them is Tory. <laughs> it's a direct quote, and uh, you may want to cross it off if your children are going to be reading the book. <laughs> She's taken up so much time. <laughs> Jim's trying to eat his breakfast over there. Look on his lap. That's dangerous. Um, well, I thought what I'd do is, is since this is a policy-oriented group, make a couple of comments and then respond to questions because I know there will be questions. The institutions that we live with today, here in the United States and the international institutions, almost all were fashioned during the Truman administration. There was the inflection point at the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War where we saw the, in the United States, the National Security Act, the National Security Council, the CIA, the Department of Defense, the USIA. Internationally, we saw the United Nations created, NATO, the IMF, the World Bank, um, I think the OAS. All of these things are now 60 some odd years old. Some have been adapted and adjusted somewhat. Uh, NATO, for example, has gone from when I served as ambassador to NATO, there were 15 members, 14 in the military, and uh, France that was in the political side. We, uh, 
it's that's changed now it's something like 25 26 28 I forget what it is but but most of them haven't changed much and, and uh, the Department of Defense has changed I should add with the Goldwater Nichols legislation which basically took away from the military services which were kind of fiefdoms each one thinking they would win the war separately uh, and it caused them to and really keep their organized train and equip function but give up their command responsibilities to combatant commanders and and each of the services gave up something and the commands now are joint uh, and you have if you turn your head for five minutes there's a lot of centrifugal force back to the services in that department but but nonetheless it is uh, it, it is one place where there was considerable change the United States government has not had a Goldwater-Nichols legislation where the departments and agencies uh, get rearranged to fit the 21st century. We're, we clearly, at the end of the Cold War, we were at another inflection point, going into the 21st century and the information age. And our government really is still basically uh, functioning in the uh, structures that are date back to the Truman administration. Um, the United Nations is struggling. Uh, the, so many of the problems in the world are problems that no one country can deal with. Proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, drug trafficking, terrorism, piracy, all of these things require the cooperation of many countries and, and the United Nations really can't do much or doesn't do much, I suppose partly because of the, the veto problem. NATO has stepped forward and done some activity and called the Partnership for Peace with non-NATO members. But it, it has basically organized to deal with the NATO treaty area and not with the rest of the world. And the NATO treaty area is not the problem today, except financially. Uh, the problem are things outside the NATO treaty area. So they obviously, it seems to me obvious, are going to have to figure out some way to begin thinking about relationships with Japan and South Korea and Singapore and <coughs> the uh, Australia, New Zealand, other like-thinking countries that can, they could cooperate with, with respect to the kinds of problems the world faces. The reason I bring it up is you all are interested in government and there was a thing called a Hoover Commission back in the, I think the 50s or 40s, that looked at government and how it was functioning and made a whole series of recommendations. It was a bipartisan group. It spent a good deal of time and gave a lot of serious thought to these issues and um, came up with suggestions and, and uh, um, proposals that I think improved how government functions. Take just the National Security Council today. It, it has a terribly difficult job. You have the Congress with the committees and subcommittees that become very turf conscious. Seniority makes them important and they then have budgets and they have control over things and they want to maintain control over those things. And, and as a result, the, the effect on the executive branch is it's very difficult for the executive branch when these problems come up. The goal would be to have those threads go through a needlehead in kind of a reasonably coherent way as they move towards the president. So uh, decisions could be made. But in fact, what happens is the, the subcommittees basically, and committees to some extent of the Congress, restrict the flexibility of the executive branch to have those 
uh, issues bend towards a president. And, and the task of the National Security Council is, as a result, enormously difficult. Um, I, I mentioned this, but on the website there's a memo I sent the president on this subject on rumsfeld.com which talks about this. And, and if someone has an interest in the subject, I would suggest they take a look at the website and, uh, that supports the book. Uh, and, and matter of fact, I was told yesterday that the website has something like 17 million hits since it, we opened it up on um, February 8th. I don't, maybe that's not a lot. It sounds like a lot to me. Some, 17 and a half million um, hits on it. Um, I think that this is an important subject. I don't find it's terribly interesting for people. Uh, and I, I suggest that it ought to be and that we uh, would be able to function an, a great deal better if, if we addressed some of these issues and gave some thought to them and maybe had something like a Goldwater Nichols uh, for the entire U.S. government and then looked at some of these international institutions as a, as a leader in the world, the United States, and gave some thought to suggesting that uh, there be some kinds of reforms there, although I, having served at NATO, I can say getting changes in an a organization that requires consensus is, is when the French are in it particularly, uh, <laughs> makes it very difficult. Nothing personal for anyone here, but just reality. With that, I'll stop and, and respond to questions from anyone except you. <laughs> Jim, prom Jim promised me, and I was nice enough to come up and introduce you how to get the first question. Okay. Okay. So, also not the sexiest topic in the world, but what ought we be thinking about China, both from a military and economic perspective? I think that, that the... the potential problems with China are being focused on to a great extent. And I think the difficulties that China has are not being focused on to the same extent. And, and the, it would bring a little better balance into it if we did give some thought to it. And I don't want to overstate it, but China has a problem, has some problems. China has problems with the one baby policy because they're male babies and there aren't enough women in the country. And uh, they're going to have to do something about it. I don't know what it'll be, but, but it's, it's a serious problem for them. They have problems with their neighbors, with Vietnam, with India, with Russia. Uh, they have a, a big imbalance in economic progress. Uh, along the coast, it's very prosperous, and internally, it's not. They still have all of these, a uh, great many of the large government uh, corporations, entities that are way overstaffed with employees and they're going to have to do something at some point to, to change that uh, and, and let them go. And they worry about it. They worry about the uh, protests that, that they have periodically in that country. They've got this very diverse population which uh, a lot of them don't like each other. and. Uh, so I look at it, I look at the situation with Taiwan, and I can think back in my career, we really worried about a potential conflict between uh, the PRC and the Taiwan, across the Taiwan Straits. I remember I was in China for the 50th anniversary of the Communist Party. I wasn't there to celebrate it, I just was there. <laughs> it was a coincidence. Um, and, uh, we went into these pavilions. They had one for every one of their provinces. And one of them was on Taiwan. 
And what it was, was war. It had all the missiles going in there and airplanes landing and bombs exploding. And it was, Phil, it was, it was like the size of this room four times, the uh, Taiwan Pavilion. And that was the attitude. Today, I, I don't worry about a, a war with Taiwan. The, the number of people that go back and forth between the mainland, the number of, when I was in business, which you left out 20 years, two Fortune 500 companies, but nothing personal, but uh, we, we had an instrument company in, in Taiwan, and, and uh, uh, we ended up transferring, I think, four or 5,000 employees onto the mainland. And, and uh, uh, they, and the relationship back and forth, not even they have flights going back and forth. So I just, I think they, one of what was a major potential flashpoint it doesn't exist today. I think they're not going to go to war over Taiwan. They, they had the big unification where they brought back um, Macau, they brought back Hong Kong, and the last one is, is Taiwan. But I'm fairly comfortable that they're not going to have a conflict over that. It just doesn't make sense. The economic activity is too extensive. The other thing they've got a problem with is they have an authoritarian government and a, a relatively, increasingly, I should say, freer economy. And they're going to have a lot of people milling around with cell phones and computers and doing all those things that people do today in the information age that is going to put a stress on their political system. It's just very easy to organize demonstrations and, and uh, the like, as we're seeing in, in, uh, in Africa. So my view is that, that I don't know how it's going to turn out with China. There's no question they're increasing their defense budget. Um, there's no question they've arrayed an awful lot of missiles against Taiwan and that they're developing a blue water navy. But I think if we manage our diplomacy well, uh, they have a lot to lose with their economic interaction around the world. They've been very smart with their aid. They've been going around buying presidential palaces for African potentates and yachts for guys who run islands in various places and soccer stadiums in another country. Relatively small amounts of money, but making friends around the world. Uh, so, so that's, and, and we don't do that as well. Uh, so I, I guess my answer is I don't know how it's going to shake out, but I think that if we manage our affairs right, it's conceivable that they'll enter the world in a, with, with not grinding gears to any great extent. Yes, Nancy. Clearly, what I was proposing, a Hoover Commission uh, type organization, is what's needed. It's the only thing that could do that. And it would have to be totally bipartisan and, and have 
people with credibility on it that, that are seriously interested in it. Take a look at the website, the memo I wrote on this. I think, I think it's, it, it moves in that direction. I don't think there's any other way to do it piecemeal. And you're quite right. The, the Director of National Intelligence Legislation and the Homeland Security Legislation is not the kind of model you want to follow uh, in terms of government reform, in my view. I mean, I've, well, I won't belabor it. Yes? I think uh, Bob Gates has done uh, generally a, a good job, and uh, he's a thoughtful man. He has um, the, the the unions got a hold of him, and and they tore up the national security personnel system, which we put in place, which is unfortunate. But that isn't his fault; it's just a reality. Um, for the most part, he's con continued the kinds of of. Uh, um, transforming steps that we put in place in terms of strengthening the special operations forces and rebalancing our forces around the world. Um, the, uh, he, um, I don't know what he, he's thinking about with respect to the budget. My, my impression is he was wise in, in trying to stake out some ground that, that might be done to uh, uh, improve the funding for the Department of Defense ahead of allowing the Congress or the Office of Management and Budget to get in there, but my guess is they're both going to get in there anyway. Uh, but he's very sensitive, wisely, to the mistake we've made repeatedly. After World War II, we did a bathtub, drew down our intelligence, drew down our Defense Department, and then Korea, we had to up it, and we kicked it right up. And then, and, and, and this, you know, it's like swinging the, the wheel from one side to the other. It, it's the least efficient way to do things. Then we did the same thing after the Korean War. We did the same thing after the Vietnam War. Did the same thing at the end of the Cold War. Last two years of the Herbert Walker Bush administration and the eight years of the Clinton administration, drew down intelligence, and then comes 9-11, and we have to build it back up. And if we do that again, it's just, it, it is, in my view, and he's been basically saying this, that um, you're not going to balance the budget. You're not going to deal with the problems of debt off the Defense Department. It's in entitlements, clearly. Uh, when I came to this town in the late 1950s and, and uh, during the Eisenhower and uh, Kennedy and Johnson era, we were spending about 10% of GDP on defense. Today it's about 3.8%. So it, it, that is not the problem uh, in my view. Now, is there waste in the Pentagon? You bet. Um, and, and it's harder than the Dickens to get at. But every year I think it was about $10 billion the Congress stuffed down our throats that we didn't want that had nothing to do with national defense. Not a bad place to start. Question. Yes. Yes. The uh, initiative that you uh, started, Mr. Secretary, of creating purple units, and particularly in training, strikes me as one of the, the real uh, initiatives that needs to go forward. Can you comment further on what you see as the integration, especially related to training and helicopter pilots and doctors and so on, yeah. in the purple uh, initiative? Well, we, we put a lot of effort on it, and, and uh, it, it's all a matter of people. Either you have people in key spots who believe that the, the uh, United States of America is better off if the Department of Defense 
emphasizes jointness and, and the interaction and interoperability and the working together. And that starts with training, as you point out. It also starts with selecting senior people who have that in their head. And uh, uh, the services have a, a tendency to become service-centric. Uh, it's, it's natural. Even within a service, uh, people get uh, uh, functional centric, if there's such a way of saying it. I mean, the artillery people or the F-16 pilots, fighter pilots, as opposed to the multi-engine pilots and in, in the submarine service versus the surface warfare versus aviation, that they all have a tendency to be focused on their niche. And, and that means that the key is to pick the senior people who have it in their head that the best interest of our country is, is, to, be, is to emphasize and work towards a more joint service. I mean, if you get into a, a battle uh, and, and the Army can't talk to the Navy because they have different communications or the people can't, don't have any joint supply cooperation, it, it just ties you up in knots. And, and you, every time you turn your head around, that, it tends to go back that way. So, question. Yes. Uh, would you comment on Obama's handling of uh, foreign policy? Well, it's, uh, it's still evolving. It's, it's tough. I mean, those are not easy decisions, to be sure. Um, I, I'm uh, uncomfortable with this idea of leading from behind that seems to be um, commented on by people in the White House. I think that that, that means that somebody else is leading, and, and I don't know who you want doing it besides the United States. You look around the world, there are not a lot of candidates. Um, it, it, the person who leads takes risks, and the person who leads, the country that, takes, that, that leads, obviously is subject to criticism. And if, you wanna, if your goal is to avoid criticism and, and avoid risk, that creates a vacuum and the vacuum then gets filled by somebody other than you and as you look around the world there I don't know where which continent offers multiple candidates that are going to do a better job than than the United States is likely to do but that means you have to take the criticism and you have to take the risks um, he um, I mean we're, here we are almost a decade uh, after 9-11 and we've not had a successful attack on the United States and I would submit that the reason is, is because we move from a defensive posture where we would indict a terrorist in New York in absentia uh, to a, a forward-looking one where you put pressure on terrorists around the world and make what they're doing harder. Harder to talk on the phone, harder to raise money, harder to recruit, harder to do everything. And the structures that President Bush's administration put in place, uh, whether it's Guantanamo or military commissions or indefinite detention, um, Patriot Act, those things contributed significantly to protecting the American people. And uh, I give the Obama administration credit for having campaigned against all of them, but two and a half years into their administration, they've kept all of them. And I, and I think that you, you get in there and it's different than running for office. You, suddenly you realize you're governing and you look at that and, and uh, it's not fun. I mean, no one wants to be a jailer uh, for people, no one wants to do those things, but, but if, if you are realistic, they have contributed, and I give them credit for that. Yes? Mr. Secretary, in, in these difficult economic times, we look to small business to create jobs. 
yet DOD has had a, a tough track record on small business contracting and hitting those goals. Can you uh, comment on, on various different uh, opportunities for small business to do business with DOD? Well, you're right. I mean, uh, it is small business in America that creates jobs. That's where the creativity is and the entrepreneurial activity and not in big business. Big business, the tendency is if you're going to deal successfully with government, you've got to have a lot of lobbyists and a lot of, of uh, lawyers, and you have to become a lot like government, which is not an attractive thing. Uh, you, but small businesses can't deal with government very successfully. And, and to do it, you've got to be big and you've got to get a lot like them to, to be able to interact. It's, it's kind of like getting in bed with a hippopotamus. It, it's warm and good for a minute or two and then he rolls over and crushes you. And, and, and he really didn't even know, he didn't even know you were there. Uh, sorry, you know, that, that it's so big and, and so mindless and so clumsy. God. So I guess I, I can't I can't speak knowledgeably about the small businesses' interaction with the Pentagon, but, but uh, boy, I'd sure try to avoid it. <laughs> yes? Uh, how would you grade our country's efforts to protect against uh, chemical and biological warfare? It was very hot after September the 11th, and mm -hmm. in the heart building. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, anyone who wants to get concerned, go study the uh, dark winter uh, study that was done by Johns Hopkins by a group of people where they posited the idea of um, uh, smallpox put in three locations in America and the result was close to a million dead. So the, the problem is clearly the lethality of these weapons and the availability of these weapons. It's not complicated. And chemical and biological weapons, if I worry about anything, it's that. I worry about the, the, uh, the fact that, that our intelligence, it's a terribly tough job to know what's going on in the world. And, and uh, you know, it's one thing dealing with countries. It's quite a different thing dealing with networks that function in ungoverned areas and, and that uh, don't have real estate to defend and where the normal deterrents don't alter their behavior. Um, but the intelligence gathering job is very, very difficult. Uh, we don't do it very well. There are repeated instances of, of missed failures of imagination, uh, to, to quote the Roberta Wolstetter book on Pearl Harbor. Um, so. It, what, why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because the lethality of these weapons is, is increasing. That means the margin for error is shrinking. We do not have a big margin for error. Um, were you with us when we went to Oman with Caboose? The Sultan in Oman, right after 9-11, we went there trying to figure out how we were going to begin to deal with the 9-11 attack reaction because there was no guidebook or, or a roadmap for it, uh, no contingency plans on the Pentagon shelves. Uh, met with this Sultan Caboose in, in Oman in a tent and, and he said this unusual thing. He said, uh, and I, I talk about this in the book, he, he, uh, he said, you know 9-11, uh, I hate to say it, but 9-11 could be a blessing in disguise. 
that it might be just what was needed to wake up the world to the dangers uh, of a chemical or a biological attack, uh, that it wouldn't be 3,000, it would be 300,000 or 3 million dead. And, and, uh, and, and that, for me, is clearly the thing to worry about, much more than China, for example. Um, yes, sir. Too soon to tell whether it's a game changer. Clearly, it's a. It's a. Uh, I mean, we've we've captured or killed uh, leaders of Al Qaeda in countries and areas of countries repeatedly, and they get replaced. Um, on the other hand, uh, he was the face of terror in Al Qaeda. He was critically important in fundraising and recruiting, and planning. Uh, so it's it's a enormously important thing. Whether or not it'll prove to be a game changer, I suppose, depends in part on whether Al Qaeda is successful in, in in developing a leader to replace them, or whether they split and have fights, which organizations often do. First question: No, I wasn't even slightly surprised. Um, if you drive up the Potomac River on the Virginia side, up from the Pentagon, a mile or two away from the Pentagon. And look at those great big estates in there with the big fences and the gated things. We don't have any idea what's going on in there. Nothing. The idea that simply because it was close to a military base in Pakistan, therefore, they had to know, I don't think so. I mean, if I were OBL, I sure wouldn't have told any Pakistani where I was. And one more person. That means there's four more people. Four more people, that means there's eight more people who know. And my guess is he, he had a billion dollars. He, he had a you know, very loyal cadre of people. And um, if, if my guess is what he did, he had maybe one or two people who knew where he was. And that's it. And they were the linkage with outside. And I don't think it's... it's uh, I worry about this, all this huffing and puffing we've seen about Pakistan. Oh my goodness, we should cut off their money or we should sever relations. And, and who, who, who in the world wants to see a failed state in Pakistan, a large Muslim country with nuclear weapons that is giving us overflight rights and gives us transit rights into Afghanistan? And, uh, you know, are they like us? No. Are there people in there who deal with the Taliban? Sure. Is it conceivable someone in the Pakistani government knew they, that his compound was there? Yes, it's conceivable, and we ought to ask the tough questions. But I don't think it's self-evident that they knew. And, and I think we all ought to take a deep breath and, and not rush to judgment and not think that the thing to do is to, is to uh, say we're, we would feel wonderful for about five minutes if we cut off relations with them and took away the money. And then what would you have? It, it, we, we did that before when they exploded a nuclear weapon. We did it with Indonesia, another large Muslim country, when they had some police activity that we didn't like. Other countries are not like us. We have to accept that. We aren't like we used to be. We used to have slaves. Women didn't vote. We had a horrible civil war. And the fact that other countries are different uh, ought to be expected, it seems to me. 
Um, so my attitude is we ought to ask tough questions. We ought to keep working with them. We ought to see if we can't figure out a way to get them to improve. They've been enormously helpful in turning over terrorists to us that they've picked up in their um, urban areas. They tried to kill Musharraf three times. So it's not like that, that they, they don't have a problem. They know they have a problem. Um, but they have a very close relationship with the Taliban. And um, they were one of three countries that had relations with the, the Afghan Taliban government, as a matter of fact. Only three in the world, and, and they were one of them. But um, I think what we need to do is, it, people say, oh, there, there's corruption. I mean, my God, there's corruption in every country in the world. Look at the congressman we've got going to the slammer. I'm from Illinois. We've had three governors jailed, and one's in the dock. So, so I, I, I don't look for a perfect world. I, I think we're going to have to deal with people that aren't like we are. It hope kind of move them in the right direction towards freer political and freer economic systems, but not think that there's some template that we've discovered that we ought to try to press down on other countries in the world. I just don't think we can do it. They've got different histories, different cultures, different neighbors, and different uh, stages of, of evolving towards wherever it is they're going. I mean, the fact that Tal um, Afghanistan, for example, oh, I'm getting the hook. Oh, no, not, not you let her go on for hours. <laughs> God. Look at him stand like that, huh? Red Cavaney, you're the, you were the head of the uh, advanced office. How was he? Was he any good? He was okay. He was okay yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I, uh, I mean, Afghanistan's a tribal nation. It ain't going to be like ours. It's going to be different. Uh, we want it to not... Um, we want it to treat the diverse elements within the country responsibly, and, and uh, we want them to give more opportunity to their people so you won't have the kind of eruptions you're seeing in North Africa. But, but I don't think we ought to think we should take our democracy template and shove it down people's throat. I just don't think it works. I think we have one last question from Congressman Billy Long. And all of you all know that one of his uh, towns in his district is Joplin, Missouri. So there's any of you that would like to reach out to him, please feel free to do afterwards. And now, Congressman Long, I'll have to have you do the last question. Uh, yes. Earlier in your answer, part of it, but on Afghanistan, where, from when we started, where our hope were, people who've been killing each other, sitting down and talking to each other and figuring out what they're willing to do. And, and I get the sense that that kind of a discussion is taking place, and that's probably uh, not a bad thing. It doesn't mean it'll work. Uh, and you wouldn't want to bring back the Taliban where they caned women if they walked around the streets without a, a male family member accompanying them and didn't allow them to go to school and, and, and use soccer stadiums to cut off people's heads. But uh, that isn't what you want to bring back. But there may be elements of Taliban that, that the Karzai government can work out arrangements with where they behave themselves and live within a, a standard that's acceptable to the entire country is, is my guess how it ends up. Uh, we're not going to build nation build there. We, 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 don't, uh, we don't know the languages. We don't know how to do that. We, we are, we've given them a chance, and they're going to have to take it and make it. And, and we wish them well. Uh, but uh, 
I, my guess is ultimately either you've got to crush them, and that's very hard given that long border and the tribal relationships with Pakistan, uh, or you either crush them or you make a deal with them. Uh, and, and my guess is that in, you know, you look at insurgencies around the world over time, it's the latter approach that tends to, to solve the problem. Thank you, sir. Nice to be with you all. <laughs>